I'm Robin Linden, and this is Eat the Rind, a podcast devoted to the world of artisan cheese and the things that go with it. Learn more online at eattherind.tumblr.com. Sherry is often neglected, even by devout wine lovers. Most of us associate it with that dusty bottle that is brought out on Christmas morning and favored year-round by grannies. But David Kenyatis of Le Cave de Perrin is on a mission to change that image and convert us all to sherry lovers. For people like me, who are interested in exploring sherry, it can be very confusing trying to make sense of the differences between the various styles. In this podcast, David gives us a masterclass in sherry. By the end, you will have absolute confidence choosing your next bottle. So Sherry is from Jerez, which is in Andalusia, is that right? Yes, Andalusia. Andalusia is Spain's largest region, but this here we're talking uh, southwest, the extreme southwest of Spain. So you've got uh, the major, the major city, I guess, would be Sevilla nearby. It's about an hour's drive north of, of Jerez, um, and you have you have three towns that um, can can supposedly ship. Sherry. Um, one is Jerez de la Frontera, where the name comes from, and then you've got um, two um, ports essentially. You've got Puerto de Santa Maria and you've got San Lucas de Alameda. So that's the, they call that the Sherry Triangle between the three towns. Um, the nearest town would be Cadiz, um, and it's about maybe an hour's drive from the Portuguese border as well, so an hour and a half. Um, so yeah, very. it's a very hot part of Spain, but actually quite humid, quite wet because it has a very much an Atlantic influence, whereas if you go to the other side of Andalusia towards you know, Granada, Almeria down there, it's very dry as well but the, the, so the distinguishing features are very hot summers but also quite humid and quite windy And do you think that affects um, the viticulture at all? Without a doubt, uh, one of the key components of, of sherry, apart from the way it's made, which um, perhaps, well, I'm sure we'll go on to discuss, but um, sherry is very much a product of, of the winery, whereas, you know, with most wines around the world, you tend to talk more these days about the vineyards and the grapes. Um, having said that, the, the vineyards there, they have a very, very high uh, chalk component. Um, you know, sometimes the soils are, are blindingly white in summer when the sun's shining. And what that does is it manages to retain a lot of moisture. So um, we're not talking about huge amounts of rain, but any rain um, that falls in the winter and the spring is absorbed by the soil and therefore can keep the vineyards keep the vineyards going. In summertime, it doesn't rain a lot, but the moisture is still there in the soil. So that's it. that's one of the key features of, of how you can make sherry in, in such a climate. And it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's, is it Palomino for every style except Pedro Jimenez? Which exactly, is... yeah. Palomino is, is the, the main grape, uh, which makes all the dry styles of uh, sherry. They also, a couple of the sweeter styles as well, um, but they tend to add sort of su- sweetening agents to, to the wines for the more commercial wines. But yeah, Palomino is, is the main grape, always has been. And then, as you said, Pedro Jimenez, which is the grapes that they... Uh, they pick late and they dry in the sun to, to intensify the sugars and then that makes it a very dark, uh, very, very sweet style of Syrupy. Yeah. So let's talk about the different styles and mm. and how they're made. So yeah. the, the driest would be... 
manzanillo or fino? Well, the difference between the two styles, say, of manzanillo and fino, um, well, you'd say manzanillo is like a, a subgroup of fino. So fino, you would describe uh, all, all the wines um, that have been aged under um, this layer of yeast called, called flor. Um, but perhaps, I mean, it might be, it might be um, interesting to talk about sort of how the wine is then transformed into, into sherry because essentially when you, you, you pick your Palomino grapes, it's, uh, it's a grape with quite low acidity, it's not particularly aromatic, it makes very dull wine. You're probably getting it, getting it at about um, you know, 11, 11.5% alcohol. Um, and it's not really a very pleasant wine Do the locals drink, drink it as they do, wine? They do. Um, and you can buy it commercially. I think there's a couple of big brands. I think one's by Barbadillo, but I can't remember the name of it. But it's, you know, it costs you one euro in the shops in Spain. And you have to chill it to about two degrees for it to taste okay. But, uh, yeah, you wouldn't choose Palomino as, as, a, as, a, as a dry wine to drink. Um, but what you do in, in, uh, in the springtime after, um, after fermentation... Uh, they then add alcohol, neat brandy, um, uncolored, unaged brandy to the wine. Like a spirit, like exactly. A pure it's spirit. just it's a it's a brandy spirit um, made from local grapes, but it's completely neutral. And then what that what you do is you you then fortify. That's why the wine is called fortify. You add alcohol to it, and you take it up to about fifteen percent, fifteen and a half percent, which creates the perfect conditions for this strain of yeast, the flor, to. Um, to appear on the wine. So you then transfer the wine into um, barrels, typically 600 litre barrels made from, from American oak, um, but you only fill the wine to about 500 litres, so you always leave a, a gap within the barrel for the yeast to develop. And depending on where you are, the yeast develops in different ways, but you essentially you're talking about a, a, a kind of crust, almost like a white crust. Imagine uh, having your soap suds in the washing up bowl. It's a similar similar look, but, but a heart, it's almost like a crust. Um, and then depending on where you are, uh, for example, if you're in San Lucar, where Manzanilla comes from, uh, because you're by the sea and the moisture levels are higher, the crust will tend to be thicker. If you're inland in Jerez, much drier, particularly in the summer, then the crust will be thinner. So uh, you, it's a bit of a generalization, but you'll tend to find the wines from the coast um, have a slightly saltier, drier feel to them. Having said that, I think it's very much down to um, the producer themselves. For example, even within your own uh, aging warehouse, there are parts of, of your warehouse which will be more humid mm. or drier or more ventilation um, and therefore will develop differently and, and each bodega you know has their own secret and ages the fino perhaps in one part of the of the warehouse and it's uh, other styles in, in another so you know you can generalize but yes mm -hmm. you would say perhaps manzanilla and then you've also got the other town which is puerto de santa maria which makes fino it doesn't make manzanilla but it's still by the sea and so mm -hmm. therefore you would probably say that the phoenix from that town would be drier and fresher than the phoenix from, from Jerez, as a general rule. Uh, and then after that, well, then the wine ages under this, this, uh, this wonderful magical yeast. Now, it does two things. Uh, well, it does lots of things, actually, but perhaps uh, the main two things are it protects the wine from uh, the air, 
um, so therefore it doesn't de um, develop a darker colour due to intense oxidation. Um, also what it does, it, um, it actually um, extracts glycerol from the wine as well. So apart from the wine, apart from the fact that sherry is extremely dry anyway, it has very little residual sugar. Any residual sugar that was left in the wine is then consumed by the by the yeast as well. So it gives you a dry wine de facto, but it also gives you the sensation of being a dry wine because you're lacking that sort of glycerol, that kind of um, luscious uh, sensation you get with with most most wines. So so is extracting glycerol a fancy way of saying eat the sugar? Pretty much, wine, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's just yeast mm -hmm. loves sugar, yeah. and, and that's what it's doing. So yeah, it's a live, it's a live yeast, um, and then through that, it will give you a sensation of more of more salinity as well. Now, there's all sorts of complex um, chemical uh, equations due here, but uh, you know, I won't go into them. Yeah. But uh, you know, it, it, I'm sure it our listeners does appreciate. That. That. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I find them. Uh, I can never remember all of them, but mm. uh, yeah, that's the sensation it gives you. So. Um, and that is fino, essentially. Um, and then, you know, you have your uh, your famous brands, and you have Tio Pepe, and I think perhaps is one of the few examples in the wine world where the biggest brand and the market leader is actually of very good quality. Mm. Um, and thanks to them, and thanks to kind of marketing push pushes by them and, and brand awareness, you know, I think a lot of people are drinking sherry and, and discovering it, and so, you know, it's um, good on them, I'd say. Um, but there are plenty of, uh, plenty of much smaller producers, some of whom have never exported before, uh, making wonderful, interesting wines. And um, What are some of your favourites in the Fino category? Mm, well, uh, the ones that you can find in this country... Um, I would say uh, the best fino for me I've ever tasted, um, but it's it's kind of an older style, slightly richer style. Is uh, one by Emilio Hidalgo called uh, La Panessa, um, which is a fino which is on average about 15 years old. Um, whereas most manzanillas or finos, you commercially available, you'd expect to be about three or four years old on average. Um, so it's a much richer, more intense, quite spicy uh, kind of wine, but is is something to behold. Um, in terms of your more classic styles of uh, fino, I would say there's a manzanilla called La Goya, which is very good. Um, it's got all that super salty freshness, but with a bit more body and a bit more um, complexity than you know, your average um, fino. Um, Valdespino make a, a very good uh, wine called Inocente. Um, and then, well... It's, I would say it's almost impossible to actually find a bad thing, to be honest. Yeah. It's one of these areas, mm -hmm. you know, I just, similar perhaps, you know, you might say Alsace, it's very diff difficult to find really bad wine, mm. and I would say the same thing about, about Sherry, notwithstanding the sweet and commercial examples, which are, which are really, really mm -hmm. terrible. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the maturation process? Of yes, sherry, yes. So this is the which another, also sets it apart from it, regular wine precisely. making. Yeah. So it's all right. You've got you've started um, developing this this yeast, um, and then the wine continues to to age like that. But what you need to do is you need to keep the yeast alive somehow. Um, so you have something called a solera system, which is essentially, in its simplest form, is like a, a system of fractional blending. So you're, you're blending um, the production from different years, um, and you're essentially adding younger wine to, to your older wine, 
in order to essentially refresh the nutrients within the barrel so the yeast can, can stay alive. It's, it's the, first, the first way of doing it. And also, obviously, to the younger wine, you're, you're giving some of the um, complex, more age characteristics that, that the older wine has. Um, and if you think of it like, if you have sort of four rows of barrels, so the, the, bar the row at the top is uh, the youngest wine, the one from the most recent harvest. The second row is perhaps last year's um, production. And then the third row is the year before, and so on and so on. And so what you do at the bottom of, of the uh, system, you have the wine that you're going to put into your bottle that has previously been blended with all the younger wines. So that's, that's where it sits. And then each time you bottle, you extract a third of all the wine in all those barrels and you put it into a bottle. So what you then do is you fill up the, the third of that barrel with the previous year's production, etc, etc. So all you're doing is you're continuously blending the wines and refilling. Um, and you know, that in its simplest form is, is the Solera system. Um, it's, it's magical to go and see it because you, know, you can see it in place and you can see, see how it's all done. But uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mysterious way of making wine, but it's... You know, I remember when I first learned about it, I had this romantic image of these ancient wooden casks on top of each other, but in, a, in an old dusty cellar. But actually, sometimes they're not even in the same room, are they? No, and they no, just precisely. move them around. Generally, what you'll do is you'll find them, as I said before, you have certain parts of the warehouse which are better for certain areas. So it's really it's just more of a mental image in terms of you think how mm -hmm. these wines. Mm -hmm. These wines are blended. So yes, you'll probably have in one corner you'll have your you know your third row, so to speak. Uh, and then in the other side, maybe with the youngest wines, you'll have it where you have more moisture or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that in principle is, is, uh, is the way of doing it. So, you know, you're just, you're just, um, you're blending, but you're, you're blending wines from different vintages and, and keeping uh, the, the yeast alive, And is, do all types of sherry go through that process? Or is it just... Uh, yes. In terms of well, the drier, the drier styles. Uh, what you will find, though, is you'll have um, you'll have some wines from uh, a particular vintage. They're very, very rare. Um, you'll hardly ever see you know a vintage on a, on a bottle of sherry. Um, but then what you'll what you'll do is you'll sort of you'll you'll blend over time. You'll still blend different barrels together to give different characteristics from different barrels. But you know, you would say 99.9% of all of all dry sherries are um, used uh, or used as solar system. Um, and then, well, with you've got then the other exception is Pedro Jimenez, which can use a solar system, but generally will just be aged in. So after Pinot and Manzanilla, the next along the line is the dry Oloroso, is that right? Because does Oloroso have two styles, dry and sweet? Yes, you can. Um, the traditional style, again, would be, uh, would be dry Oloroso. Um, perhaps perhaps if, if before we move on to Oloroso, yep. is, is, um, because it's a slightly different way of aging the wine, is that um, a cellar master can monitor the way the barrels are developing and, and look at the way the, the floor is and um, in some instances the floor will, will die and therefore uh, once the wine starts um, coming into, um, into contact with oxygen then the wine will get a deeper colour and 
and we'll develop different flavours, you know, rather than the sort of salty, fresh, tangy flavours that we discussed with Fino. Uh, the the oxidised style will become more kind of nutty, dried fruit, much richer in style. So what happens is um, the Fino starts developing into what they call an Amontillado. So an Amontillado has spent time um, and it's like what they call biological aging, which is under, under this yeast, um, and then starts um, being aged oxidatively. So it's, it's had a, a bit of both, if you like. Um, Amontillado, the word actually comes from Montilla, which is near, which is where they, um, they make Montilla, near Cordoba. And it's a completely different style of wine. It's not fortified, but it's, it's, uh, it's in the same mould um, in terms of um, being that kind of sherry style. Um, but it will always tended to be much richer, much darker style of wine. So that's why the, the people in Jerez called it Amontillado, because it was in the style of Amontilla. Mm. Um, maybe we could do a, another chat about Amontilla, because actually that's, it's a very interesting wine style too. Um, so really that's the difference between the, the Fino and Amontillado. It's just really a fino, uh, an old Fino where the yeast has died and therefore is starting... Um, to age oxidants. And so what are some of the flavours that you get in Yeah, I would liken it to um, kind of roasted nuts, mm-hmm. um, very nutty flavour, um, dates, figs, you know, dried fruits for sure. It's got slightly toffee, kind of caramelly um, connotations, but remembering that this wine is still completely bone dry, so there's not, not been any addition of all of this. It's simply this, this oxidation. Um, in oxidation, um, in most wine production is, is not something that people are looking for you know you, you try and protect the wine from oxygen obviously um, it can it can start turning a, a wine into vinegar um, uh, and usually you might find say if you find a, a white wine that's that's oxidized then you might find kind of um, notes of almost like amaretto notes kind of almondy hints that you sometimes find with um, mm-hmm. with normal wines but uh, this is something that's Actually, you're looking, you're for, looking within, for, yeah. Sherry. So, so an ox- oxidization literally just means access to oxygen. Exactly, yeah. The wine, um, because remembering that the wine uh, is, or the barrel rather, is only three quarters full, really. So there's always going to be oxygen within the barrel. Normally, in, in standard winemaking, you, you have the, the barrel or tank or whatever vehicle you're using as full as possible in order to avoid oxidation. Um, so oxidation is, is, is something that is encouraged for, for sherry. So, um, you know, Amontillado is very different, much um, much richer in body. Also, another thing to bear in mind is that, you know, as I said before, the yeast needs around 15, 15.5% in order to, to, to develop and survive. Once you then increase the alcohol over, over that, then, then it won't come back. So once the, the um, yeast has died and the cellar master thinks well now I want it to develop as an Amontillado then they tend to fortify it the wine even mm. further up to 17 or 18 percent mm-hmm. alcohol um, so to ensure that the yeast doesn't come back and then it will continue developing as an Amontillado. Now some Amontillados you know you might find are um, maybe have spent two years under the yeast and then maybe another five years um, in touch with oxygen and then we'll bottle the wine and, and off it goes and that's a nice young fresh Amontillado always with these notes of nuts and, and 
dried fruits. But some wines you'll find it, you know, you'll find 50, 60, 70 year old examples which are absolutely extraordinary things. And, uh, and you know, I encourage anyone to, to try these wines. But, you know, it's not a wine that you would sit down, you know, on a hot sunny day on, on the terrace and have with your, your olives or your almonds. Um, it's a wine, it's a more serious wine in terms of complexity and you know you might match it to, to um, cured meats or obviously cheese mm-hmm. is a magical thing as well. Um, so that's how you would sum up Amontillado and then, then you have, as you mentioned before, the other branch if you like of dry wine or dry sherry which is Oloroso. Um, so we go back to uh, when, when the wine is first transferred into barrel and then fortified. Um, so some sometimes the wine's fortified up to 15% to encourage the yeast. Sometimes the wine, uh, I call them the winemakers, not the winemakers, the cellar master, I suppose, um, will decide that certain barrels actually he doesn't feel have the certain characteristics to develop as a phenol. Hmm. He will then fortify the wine straight up to 20% or 18 perhaps, maybe 20, and therefore just decide that the wine is going to age oxidatively for all of the its whole life. time mm-hmm. exactly so olorosos because they haven't had this this effect of the yeast will tend to be even richer and even more full-bodied even more of that kind of dried fruit character than an amontillado in, in its kind of simplest form so it's not necessarily that the wine has had a fault it's just that the cellar master decides it would it would it would survive better or express itself better. Exactly, yeah, it might be to do with acidity levels, uh, maybe even lower acidity than, than the wine distant for Fino. Uh, maybe it could be from certain vineyards that he knows, you know, give you different fruit and therefore, you know, he always knows, he or she, I should say, there are some female cellar masters, uh, uh, will decide that that's Um It's it's probably a smaller part of the production, I would say. Um, but it has its, its own place. But whereas an amontillado, you know, you might you might match with um, kind of lighter meat dishes or, or cured meats. You know, a lot of could go with a really big, heavy, fatty sort of red meat dish or, or stronger aged cheeses or, or really kind of um, old cured hams and things like that. Um, so what are some of your favorite brands of amontillado and oloroso? It's a very good question. That we mere mortals ha- do have access to. Uh, yes, yes. Well, to be honest, if I ever go to somewhere like, uh, well, any supermarket, to be honest, generally has, even their own local stuff will be um, from a good bodega. Mm. Because I can't remember off the top of my head, to be honest, how many um, bodegas there are that export wine, but it's, it's few. It's very few. Maybe 35 or 40. Um, I'll have to double check that, or you'll have to you have to <laughs> see see where I am on that. But I, it's very few bodegas. So generally, you know, Waitrose has probably the best selection, but they'll be shipping from I don't know. There's Williams and Humbert. Um, there are, there is Lustau. Uh, there is Emilio Hidalgo I mentioned earlier. Um, Gonzalez Bios who make Tio Pepe uh, have some wonderful old Amontillados and Amontillados. So. Really, I'd just encourage you to just try try them all because you know they're all they're all of a good quality, um, and some of the older ones are just extraordinary. You know, you you may be paying fifteen, twenty pounds, thirty pounds a bottle, but the outrageous quality you're getting, but also the fact that they're so old. You know, some of these wines are, as I said, forty, fifty years old. You're certainly not um, going to get a claret that old at that no, price point. No, absolutely not. So. 
Uh, it's still, without a doubt, the most undervalued wine on the planet, you'd probably say. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd encourage anyone to just just buy these these wines. I mean, you know, Sainsbury's. If ever I run out of sherry at home, then you know I'll quite happily pop to Sainsbury's and buy their their own label Manzanilla, and it's from a it will be from a good a good bodega. So then, there's one last variety. Yes, well, there's actually a little sneaky one oh. in between all of these, and then we can move on to the Pedro Jimenez, which is the really sweet one. But uh, we have something called Palo Cortado, which is quite a mysterious, uh, <laughs> mysterious creation, which even the the Jerezanos, the, 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 the people from Jerez, um, have still never really explained to me that I'm 100% clear as to what it is. But in its, in its simplest form, uh, it's essentially, it's, it's a wine that has been destined for fino, so had, had the yeast, um, and perhaps is maybe destined towards Amontillado, but somehow is just maybe not developing in the right way that the cellar master feels will turn into um, uh, an Amontillado, and therefore will fortify it straight away up to 18 20% to to encourage oxidative aging. So so it could be a wine that maybe has had a couple of years aging um, under yeast and then and then just go straight into oxidative aging. Um, and generally what you'll do is you'll have is the reason why it's called palo cortado is the cellar master will put a palo like a like a a number one equivalent a palo is like a stick uh, on the barrel to say that's that's the fino and then um, if the wine isn't developing the way they feel then they put um, a, a kind of a mark through it a, a cut from cortado mm-hmm. from cortado so cortado um, and that's the reason why why palo cortado is given that name um, having said that I think there's about 20 producers that make Palo Cortado. Pretty much everyone makes it in a different way. And I know some add a little bit of Pedro Jimenez grapes to kind of give it a touch of sweetness and, a, and more body. Um, some others don't use any. Some others um, have age, been aging it as an amontillado and then add more alcohol. So it's, it's slightly confusing. And to me, I don't think it really, you know, you can't generalize in terms of what a Palo Cortado is. Having said that, I'd probably say that it lies somewhere in between an Amontillado and an Oloroso in style. So it has elements of that sort of fresh saltiness that you get from Amontillado with the extra richness that you might find from an Oloroso. Um, there's not much made of it and um, you know, some of them are, are very old and truly extraordinary, but uh, it's, um, it's just worth trying a couple to, to see what you think. I have seen it in sherry bars. I don't... Feel like I see it generally available by the bottle in a wine shop, but I definitely yeah. see it by the glass and sherry yeah. bars. Yeah, as I say, it's every producer is different, so you, know, you can't generalize. And, but, uh, you know, you probably I don't know what the figures, but it's probably like three percent of all the sherry mm. so it's, it's tiny, tiny production. But they 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 keep on. Um, telling me about this sort of mysterious no one knows what's going on I mean that's rubbish you know the cellar master knows exactly what they're doing so I th- I'm pretty sure they'll just have identify some of the barrels that they know will develop in a certain way and therefore mm. they decide well that's going to be a palette so it's a kind of you know it's a it's a it's a weird amontillado that's a good explanation for yeah. it that's a good it's description weird. yeah <laughs> and now for not weird is the luscious 
delicious. Yes, the Pedro Jimenez. So that refers to the, the grape, uh, and it's um, it's a grape with much higher sugar levels, and they tend to pick it later to to increase those sugar levels. And then once picked, you'll dry them in the sun on straw mats in the sun um, to get them into raisins, and then you uh, you squeeze squeeze the grapes. You get this incredible juice. It's it's um, as far as I know, it's one of the the um, the sweetest juices you'll find from any any grapes in the world, and the resultant wine also has one of the highest re residual sugar levels left, often between 400 and 600 grams of sugar per liter of wine, which is quite something. Wow! So yeah, diabetics beware. But it's 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 uh, it's quite an incredible wine. It's uh, it's almost black, um, and it looks like um, treacle when you pour mm. it. Um, it's great on ice cream. It is delicious on ice cream, and that's often the way people would would have it. Um, it's one of the one of the few wines that complements really bitter chocolate very well. Mm. You know, you might say a couple of the maybe liqueur muscats from Australia, or you know, um, possibly some banyuls and things like that. But you know, Pedro Jimenez is, is the, the best one for for chocolate, also for anything really really sticky in desserts. Um, but really, as a wine to drink, I mean, it's very rarely that I'll just sit there drinking for a few minutes. Yeah. On a hot day on, on the beach. Quite, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, two small glasses is, is yeah. more than enough just from the sugar levels. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, again, quite a small part of, of, of sherry production, but a, a very interesting... It's part. great with really spicy blue cheeses. Absolutely. Like Picon Beres Treviso, it's great with that. Um, you can imagine. It's great with Stitcherton. Yes, and why, you know, why drink just port with mm. blue cheese? You know, and obviously it's the sweetness of the wine that goes well with with the the, the blue characteristics of the cheese. But there are plenty of other other wines that go well. But um, other brands that people should look out for. Well, some of the best examples are made by Gonzalez Bias, Actually, funnily enough, um, the, the Tio Pepe uh, producer. Um, trying to think of other other well-known brands I mean again you'll probably find the names things like uh, Lustau um, there's a very one a very good one made by Sanchez Cromate from Jerez um, Emilio Hidalgo most producers will make a little bit of, mm -hmm. of Pedro Jimenez mm -hmm. yeah um, but and they come in quite small bottles normally so you don't have to commit exactly Exactly. Having said that, it's a wine that you could keep in your cupboard for ten years, and it will stay the same because the the, the sugar level is so high that you know. So you can open it, and you don't have to keep it in the fridge. Absolutely, stay the same. And what so, about other sherries? Is that true for other sherries? Yes and no. So the Fino styles, once you get the oxygen into contact with the wine, then you know I recommend it probably drinking. I would say within a, a week of, of opening, but you know it quite happily stay there for a couple of weeks, but it will just lose some of its some freshness of its zing and freshness mm -hmm. yeah the other thing to bear in mind is a lot of the commercial finos these days uh, tend to be uh, charcoal filtered um, stabilized you know cold stabilized all these sort of treatments to to essentially allow the wine to to be in bottle probably for longer it's a bit like i don't know um, pasteurization or mm. or heat treatment mm -hmm. or whatever it is with whatever product you're looking at which is all very well, but you know that means that once opened, it's a very fragile creature. Mm -hmm. Whereas you go back to the more traditional styles, and 
Um, maybe something we can discuss as well is something called Embrama, which are, which are these um, seasonal um, bottlings of wine which are unfiltered and unfined. These wines tend to actually stay, um, stay open, or keep, sorry, I'd say keep fresher, much better once opened. Um, and, you know, typically Finor should be a slightly golden uh, colour, whereas, you know, you look at the commercial the big brands, they're, they're crystal clear, pale mm-hmm. white. That's just because it's been charcoal filtered. So yeah. um, I can understand the commercial requirement for that, but uh, it just means that the wine loses some of its character. character yeah. um, whereas uh, once you get to Amontillado and Oloroso, then, then you could quite happily keep it for a few weeks, a month. Mm-hmm. No bother at all. In fact, you know, Oloroso is even more so because the wine has spent so so much of its life in touch with oxygen. Then a little bit more isn't going to hurt it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. So even uh, even in full seventy five centiliter bottles, it wouldn't be wouldn't be an issue. I would say Finot for sure. You know, if you're not going to drink a whole bottle with friends during dinner, then half bottles would be would be the way to go. But most of them are available in halves. Yeah. But I think that's one of the things that's great about sherry is that it encourages people to experiment by making it so that you don't need to finish it in a day or two like you do precisely unfortified wines yeah. Yeah. You, and also that so many of them come in half bottles so it's you know it's, it's set up to experiment yeah. no, without a doubt and there's I don't think there's ever been a time in the last 10 years where my fridge hasn't had a half bottle mm. of something in there Lucky you. Mm, well, <laughs> you Lucky fridge. To cook with. Yeah. But it also makes it great for a cheese course because it means you can have the wine and then feel like you can just take out a half bottle like people do with port or pudding wine exactly. um, for that course yeah. and not feel like you've broken the bank for one course. Precisely. And you only need a little bit, let's face it. I mean, these are intense wines in many cases and just a small glass will, will do. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, f- the, f- the food matching, interestingly enough, that's... Sherry's so versatile from that point of view, you mm. know, because of the, the, the essential characteristics of the wine, you know, you have this salinity and this sort of umami character that Sherry has. It, 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 for me, it's the most versatile food I've ever Well, anywhere. and it, it begs to be eaten, with food, doesn't yeah. it? And Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because in trying to work out why it pairs so well with cheese, because mm. to me, I mean, you and I have tasted lots of cheeses together and lo- with lots of different types of Sherry and yeah. have basically never had... A clunker. No. And in fact, not. we've both been really astonished. And it's some of the most successful cheese and beverage pairings I've done absolutely. have been with Sherry. And trying to work out why, I mean, sort of the only thing I can sort of come up with is you know, the, the intense flavor that a Sherry has. I mean, it, it, it's not an easygoing no. sort of light flavor. This is a bold, all of them yeah. in their own way are very yeah. bold. And I wonder if that's what makes them stand up to the cheese and the fattiness of the cheese. Yes. I don't know if you have any thoughts about why it is that Sherry is so good with cheese. I think there's lots of reasons, but if, you know, if you've mentioned the fact that it is, it's so intense, it won't be dominated by many foods, yeah. regardless of what you throw at it, whether it's extreme spice or extreme fat or extreme uh, flavour. It's, it's incredible. It can cope it just sort of seems to ride it all. Um, but, you know, there are, there are better matches for certain things. Um, obviously, with, uh, with certain types of cheese, whether it's sort of, you know, aged hard cheese with that sort of extra salty quality, then some wines just won't be able to cope. They won't have, they won't have the, um, 
the minerality or the texture because it's it's all very well have maybe a wine having the texture to cope with it, but then it won't it won't have the acidity or it won't have the the, the body, whatever it is. So sherry has it all. Um, but then you'll you know you'll find Oloroso perhaps might not match you know one of one of the, the, the harder cheeses. It might go well with kind of a, a washed rind cheese or whatever it is. It just seems to just seems to in a, in a way that that oftentimes with particularly red wines, uh, they, they become so much more tannic yeah. under a strong cheese, um, even though you would think that their boldness could stand up to a bold cheese. In fact, you end up just feeling the tannins yeah, and not experiencing the wine, whereas obviously sherry doesn't, yeah. doesn't do that. Yeah, and this, I think that the oxidative um, character of sherry certainly helps, um, you know, much like... Uh, some styles from from the Jura, you know, work well with cheese. There's something about the the way the vin jaune, the, exactly. Yeah. The, the, the the texture of the wine seems to seems to work well with with, with the, the fattiness of the cheese and and the intensity. And, uh, uh, even even the the lighter fino styles will still have its its partner. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably about the salinity and minerality. Yes. You know, that yeah. that really stand up and cope well with cheese. And I think we found once, you know, we expected like a, a sweet uh, Pedro Pimenos or something to, to match some of the blue cheese, but then we found an Oloroso, a dry Oloroso, yeah. still coped with it, and it was yeah. absolutely delightful. I know. Yeah, so, yes, it throws, yeah. Sherry kind of throws all of my preconceptions about wine and cheese matching out the window, yeah. which is why it's so great that it comes in half bottles and that it was an I've read about Sherry in many wine books, but it wasn't until spending an hour with David that I finally felt I got my head around the various styles. And now that you understand the differences, which style are you going to try first? If you're in London, check out Swaff in Battersea or Braun on Columbia Road to sample a range of styles.